0: All right. Well, in the packet that you have in front of you is um, obviously the normal worksheet that we go through on a Wednesday night. The, the back part is obviously the verses that are there for you to look at. And then the very, very back on the last page, on the back side of the last page, is uh, a bibliography that I'm just going to keep running through this series. So you can look on there and see where most all of the information is coming from and you can feel free to consult these at any moment. Um, some of them may be a little bit more accessible than others. Some may be a little more out of print than others, just in various capacities, but um, I'd be happy to answer questions about them as you, or about the authors that wrote them as, as much as I can um, as you have questions. I'll just keep that bibliography on that back page and just keep it running throughout the series. This is a new series that we're going into um, before we go back to the Old Testament um, soon, but this uh, I I I found necessary as we started to think about how our church, uh, how church structure is is built and why church structure is built the way it is. it, It really revolves around the conversation of salvation, and believe it or not, salvation is one of those topics that we all celebrate and then we fight over, (laughs) <laughs> we celebrate the fact that we're saved and by God's grace and, and mercy, and then we fight over how, we came, how it came to be, uh, basically, is what happened. And So, um, so I, I thought it would be necessary for the next uh, few weeks. Right now I've got plotted out about 12, and that may change but, um, a, a little bit. But basically to go through and to really think deeply about what God's Word tells us is true of our own salvation how we actually came to be in the place that we're at right now. And really, not only just digging into how we're saved, but then actually thinking about our nature, our state, prior to Christ, uh, prior to God intervening, and how it is that you and I came to sit in a church on a Sunday morning singing praises uh, to a a Savior we've never seen with our own two eyes. Um, But how it is that we came to be in that place, how we came to be changed by this Bible that we have open in our laps, and why it is maybe sometimes that we could share the gospel with a friend or a family member or someone sitting next to us, and it seems like it just falls on deaf ears, like they just can't see what you are saying. And what you know to be true, and what you hold so dearly, and you yet you communicate it to them, and it's like, it just it's like they it's like they have blinders on, right? Or, they, or their ears are closed. And and why is that the case? And so we're going to go through a whole litany of those things. And I can promise you that in most every one of these sessions, it's going to open up a whole host of questions, right? And so we're going to try to. Take, tackle those a little bit at a time. Inevitably, there's going to be questions that we can't answer or that we don't really get to the bottom of, and that's okay, but uh, we're going to do our best to see what God's Word says in as many places as possible to kind of compile and help us to understand uh, how we really define salvation, what it is, uh, how, we're sa- how we come to be saved, and how God did what He did. Um, this is all in anticipation of us really beginning to have conversations with people outside the walls of this church, as we think about calling people, as we think about visiting people, as we start to go on people's doorsteps and share the gospel, we kind of really need to know how someone come to be saved in the first place, right? And then obviously, what is the gospel that we're sharing? So I want to define all of those things in this this series if we can. And so let's start at the very beginning. I I really, for the next two weeks, really just want to make us feel real bad if we can. Uh, for <laughs> for just just a minute, as we start to really think about sin itself, its nature, what it is, and what it's done to us, and how we even understand our sinful nature. And so really, I want us to look at, at us for a second and just really see that the problem is us uh, more than anything. So the history of the human race, as is presented in Scripture, is primarily a history of of man in a state of sin and rebellion against god and of god's plan of redemption to bring man back to himself so we define sin very clearly and scripture defines sin very clearly as lawlessness It is absolute unadulterated lawlessness and it's universal to all mankind and it began in, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So I want to read just a couple of uh, passages that really uh, get at that kind of idea. Look at 1 John 3, 1 John verse, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. John's point is to draw a correlation, a line, between sin and the fact that it is absolute lawlessness. It's breaking away from God altogether. Um, but then what we also see here is in, in Romans two fourteen to 29 and i want to read that if we can just to kind of get an idea of where Paul's going in Romans because there's a good bit of Romans that's going to come up in today's session. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God... And know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say the one must not commit adultery do you commit adultery you who abhor idols do you rob temples you who boast in the in the law dishonor god by breaking the law for it is written for as it is written the name of god is blasphemed among the gentiles because of you for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Um, And then finally, Genesis 3, 1-7, we see that it begins with Adam and Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any uh, tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Um, we, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we see that it, it obviously is, is not only sinfulness, but it's, it's lawlessness, it's universal to all mankind, and it begins here in the garden with Adam and Eve, where they sin against God, they're told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and uh, Eve is standing there, Adam remains silent in the whole deal. And she's tempted, and she sees that actually the eating of the fruit is to be desired, to make one wise. Instead of receiving her instruction, in other words, from the Lord, and Him determining what's right, and Him educating the couple, and Him giving them the kind of wisdom that they need, they sought it another way. They sought it in rebellion. They, so they rebelled against the Lord. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked. So we see further as we just sort of define what sin is. I think it's helpful just to kind of wrap our mind around it. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin does not only in, is not only sin includes not only individual acts such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the ones that God requires of us. We see this several times throughout the law and in several other places where Jesus mentions how we obey God is that it doesn't just include the things that we do, but the things that we think. Not just the ways that we act, but the actual motivations inside our heart. Consider just a second, Exodus 20, 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. He isn't even talking about doing anything. He's not even talking about stealing something out of your neighbor's house. Obviously, that's covered by another commandment. He's just talking about a desire in your heart for something that is a possession of someone else's. Or Matthew 5.22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Then he goes into insults and, and what you say to your brother, but it begins with just someone who is angry with his brother. I mean, has any of us felt anger towards somebody? Jesus says it's out of bounds. The very m- dealing with anger inside our heart is is out of bounds. It's, it's immediately. What about uh, Matthew 5, 28? But I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we're in a situation where even the motivations, the attitudes that are contrary to the ones that God requires of us have already testified to us that that's sin. It's Law, and, then, and then, as John has already said, sin is lawlessness. As Paul has already said, one sin makes you accountable to the entire law. If you say that you, you follow the law and that you're teaching others, but yet you transgress the law on one point, you've done it all. You've broken it. You're a transgressor. So you tell people not to commit adultery, but do you lust in your heart? Have you ever lusted in your heart? So immediately we start to see sin perhaps permeates us maybe more than we would like to admit on the surface. So perhaps it's true that when we come to our worship services on Sunday mornings and we get to that time of confession, which probably for the first, I don't know, several months that we did that, it felt a little different. Never maybe done that before in church. Don't we have to ask why? Why don't we do that more often in church? Why is that not a thing that we we do given how prone we are towards sin. When you start to define sin not as merely walking up to somebody and taking what doesn't belong to you, but now the motivations of your heart, and you really start to put a mirror up in front of your own heart, and you go, how much sin is really in there? It's kind of shocking, isn't it? It's a little bit scary and intimidating in the in the universe that god uh, that, that is created by god sin ought not to be sin is directly opposite to all that is good in the character of god so god necessarily and eternally hates sin this is essentially what we see in the genesis narrative as it opens the opens scripture that When God created man and woman, He created them in such a state that they were innocent of sin. And He created them to be in that state. The very fact that you and I have those kinds of sins in our heart, and there's not been a kid that any of us have had in this room that didn't also struggle with those same things, that we didn't have to teach to sin, right? Given the fact that we're all born that way, it indicates that well, we're right there in line with Adam and Eve. We're, we're, we're complicit in the same things that they're, they were complicit in. But it's against the character of God. Look at Proverbs 6, 16-19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet, that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Boy. I think we could all find things in there that convicting. Psalm 5:5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Well, that if you really stop and ponder that one, that'll make you think. Psalm eleven five: the Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Alright. Deuteronomy 7.10 uh, And repays to their face those who hate him by destroying him. He will not be slack with one who hates him, but will pay him face to face. It, it, we're, we're seeing that in the character of God, it is, sin is completely antithetical to, to, his, to his nature, to his character. And so, um, the sinful, sinful man is at odds naturally with the Lord. Therefore, a life that is pleasing to God—if we're really to think about what does it mean to live a life pleasing to the Lord—and if we're going to say, "Hey, we've got we've got, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make it on our own," all right? Let's just say we remove Jesus from the equation for just a second. Let's say we're going to, we're going to go at it alone. We're going to, we're going to make it on our own. A life that is pleasing to God is one that has moral purity not only in its actions but also in its desires of heart. Look at Mark 12, 30-31. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So if you think about this, Jesus says the fulfillment of the whole law is love. It's an affection change. It begins here on the inside. This is precisely the problem. In other words, all of those things that we would define as sin are things that we do, things that we take what doesn't belong to us, or commit adultery, or murder, or the list goes on. All of those things, Jesus is saying, are a problem starting first in the heart. It's a fundamental problem. It's not something that you can, of your own power, change. But how does the sin of Adam actually affect us? Scripture teaches that we inherit sin from Adam in two ways. The first is through inherited guilt. The first is through inherited guilt. This means we are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. I think when it comes to understanding sin and the real problem, this right here is probably the one that most people skim right past or don't understand at all. The concept of inherited guilt. You understand this? That you're born before you ever make a decision one way or another, you are born a sinner. That's the sin nature. You're born from the beginning, corrupt already. And I want to show you this because it, 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 comes up so often in Scripture, and yet sometimes we just have blinders on to see it. Because we might think that, well, the babies that we hold in our arms, there's one right here in the back, so sweet, so cute, so precious. And it, it burdens me, it troubles me to have to call that sweet little baby wicked from the womb, right? I don't want to have to do that, but somebody's got to say it. All right, uh, you know, <laughs> I was nominated as the one. So, uh, but through inherited guilt, guilt from Adam—that is—we're born sinful. We're born already corrupt. There's, there's literally nothing we we've done or anything like that from the beginning, and yet there we are with inherited guilt from Adam. And so the Bible explains that our condemnation does not merely come from the sins that we commit from day to day, but that we are condemned because we are Adam's children. We therefore carry the guilt of his sin through the sin of Adam all sinned. Why not you just look at a couple of passages that get at this. Romans 5, 12. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. When Adam sinned, Paul says, everyone sinned. Just sit on that for a second. Think about Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, all die. Death, the death penalty, which was a penalty paid for Adam's sin, that death penalty was given to you and to me before we did anything. Innocent, quote-unquote, innocent babies die every day before they've even made a decision one way or the other. Sometimes they don't even make it out of the womb. The death penalty is given to them. And if we think about that for a second, I think there's a real struggle there. Don't we think like, Whoa, wait a minute. Shouldn't the baby or the kid have a right to stand on his own two feet and then make a decision one way or the other before we determine whether or not he's guilty or innocent? That's not how it is. In Adam, all die because all sinned. When Adam sinned, all sinned. We were there together. In other words, instead of God judging humanity like corn stalks, each of them has their own root, He judged humanity like a tree. You're the branch, Adam's the root. How do you separate the two? You don't. The root's corrupt, the whole tree is corrupt. Top to bottom. The fact that we are, well, I'll get there in just a second. Um, from the time uh, of Adam to the time of Moses, people did not have God's written laws. Though their sin, though their sins were not counted as infractions of the law, they still died. The fact that they died is very good proof that God counted people guilty, on the basis of Adam's sin. So Paul goes on to explain this. What he's just said in Romans 5.12. He says, sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned. That's 5.12. He goes on to explain how we know this is true just by observing history. Okay? Let's look at Romans 5:13 and 14, which is the next two verses. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So, when you read Paul, especially in Romans, you can be like, what on earth are you saying? Please tell it to me straight. And even the Bible, Peter himself says, we know our brother Paul is difficult to understand. So, Peter gives us a little bit of God-inspired truth that gives us a little comfort. But basically, the argument that Paul is making is that in Adam, all sinned, and because all sinned, all died. So, what he then goes on to say is that, remember, between Adam and Moses, there was no law. Was there? God had not yet given a law to humanity saying, thou shalt not steal, and... Thou shalt not commit murder, and yada, 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 yada. But two things happened between Adam and Moses. People still did all those things, right? They still broke what we now know of as the law all the time. But because there wasn't a law, it wasn't as though they were making any kind of infraction, were they? If there's not a posted speed limit, like, what is it, Montana or Wyoming? I can't remember which state it is that's supposed to not have a speed limit. Uh, Or the autobahn? Are there speeding tickets issued on the autobahn? Well, I guess not. If they don't have a posted speed limit, how can you get a ticket, right? That's basically what he's saying, is that between Adam and Moses, there were no tickets issued because there was no law. But people still died. Why did people still die if there were no infractions? Because in Adam, everyone was guilty. The whole root, the whole tree, every bit from top to bottom, stem to stern, was all dead guilty in Adam. So God looked at Adam as a representative for all of humanity, and he said, Adam's sin is reckoned to everyone. So anyone born after that man is corrupt because the root is corrupt. Get it? Right. So Paul's point is, he's not, it's not because of an infraction that they broke that they're being punished, because their sin is not like Adam's. Adam had a law. Yep. Don't eat. Their sin was not like Adam's. They didn't have an infraction to break. Their sin was by nature of the root that they're connected to. That's the reason they died. Right? They're humans. They're Adam's children. Does that make sense? Guilt they're guilt by association. Yeah. Yeah. Lay down with dogs, wake up with fleas, all right? We lay down with Adam, and we woke up with death, all right? There you go. That's how we look at it, okay? So the conclusion to be drawn from these verses is that all members of the human race were represented by Adam in the time of testing in the Garden of Eden. As our federal head, Adam sinned, and God counted us guilty as well as Adam. So Adam was a federal head. Now, that term, federal head, probably for some of you went, what in the world is that? And yet, federal headship is something that you cherish, that you love, that you celebrate, particularly every 4th of July. We live in a representative republic, a representative democracy, a republic democracy. So basically what that means is we vote somebody who is our representative to go somewhere, whether it's the state legislature or whether it's the national legislature. We vote somebody who is our representative to go where we can't really go. And the decisions that they make, fortunately or unfortunately, impact us all, don't they? They are our representative. And federal headship is one of the things that we've always recognized actually as the thing that makes the country great. It's a a representative democracy. It's, it's It's a great balance of the two, right? And we, we, ha- we have that, we celebrate that, we cherish that, we love that. And then when we look at Adam, we go, well, I don't understand federal headship. Yes, we actually do. He is our representative, and God judges all of us in accordance with what he does. <laughs> That's true, we didn't, we didn't vote him in. There's a lot of other people up there we didn't vote in, right? <laughs> we, we could also say this is part of our government, yeah. Uh, so Adam is our, is our federal head. And, and it's, it's going to be really important that we understand Adam this way because the argument that Paul's actually making in Romans 5 is Adam is this way and Jesus is also this way. The difference is, Adam is this way by natural birth. He's your federal head simply because you're born... In, with flesh and bone, with skin and blood, you're born as a child of Adam. By nature you are born into Adam's line. Jesus is also a federal head but you're born into his line supernaturally. That's going to be the difference. Spoiler alert, we're going to get there in a few weeks. Alright. So it's really important that we understand Adam as the federal head for all of humanity and that he represents us all because if we don't understand that We can never really understand the cross and how that functions. Why is it that Jesus can be on the cross and die as a representative for all humanity? And when you explain this to people, the the gospel that is, to people outside churches and sometimes even inside churches, they go, well, that doesn't make sense. How does some guy's death 2000 years ago actually have an impact on me? Why does that matter for me? How do we even explain or understand the gospel? When Jesus, one man, stand, sits on a cross, is nailed to a cross, and he dies for you. How is it that he can represent you? Well, if you don't understand how Adam represents you, it's going to be really hard to wrap your mind around how Jesus repre- could possibly represent you. So, the, so that's the first way that Adam's sin affects us. The second way Scripture teaches that Adam's sin has affected us is through inherited corruption. So there's inherited guilt, and then there's inherited corruption. And we're going to spend a lot more on the time on this next week, but through inherited corruption. That means that we have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. That means that we commit sins now. Right? Not only are we born in connection to the root, and born wicked from the womb, and there's nothing you can do about it, you're guilty already. Inherited guilt. We also have inherited corruption, meaning that when you grow up, you're not going to have to teach your kids how to steal or how to be greedy or how to be envious or how to be jealous or how to hit their sister. You don't have to teach them any of those kinds of things. They're going, to be, they're going to know how to do that, and they're going to do it all the time because of an inherited corruption. So the inherited tendency to sin does also not mean that all humans are as bad as they possibly could be. So we recognize that, right? That not everyone is Hitler but all of us have the propensity to be Hitler. There's nothing that Hitler did, or Mussolini, or any bad dictator for that matter, that any one of us couldn't do. Right? We don't look at that and go, that is beyond the scope of humanity. No, it's not. It's what happens when sinful man is maybe not quite as bad as they could be, but close. Right? And has a lot of power. The constraints, of the, so the constraints of civil law, the expectations of family and society, the conviction of a human conscience, they all provide a restraining influence on the sinful tendencies in our heart. This is commonly referred to as God's common grace. So there is a common grace that He gives to every person which has a restraining capacity. He has given to us human government, in other words. And the purpose of human government is to punish the evildoer and reward the do-gooder. And because human government is there, it restrains people from being as evil as they possibly could be. In addition to that, there is a common grace of our conscience. There's our family. There's the fact that we don't want to end up in prison. All right? That's a a common grace, actually, to us. Um, So in spite of the ability to do common good... Our inherited corruption means that as far as God is concerned, we're not able to do anything that pleases Him. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road a little bit. Because when we say, you cannot please God, it is impossible. People go, wait wait a minute. Doesn't your neighbor, who is not a Christian, who packs up his car with all of his... Uh, belongings that he doesn't use anymore, takes it down to goodwill and donates it, or gives it to the poor, or provides something for somebody that was in need, doesn't that please God? Isn't that good? How is it possible that we can't please God? And I think there's going to be a tendency, and there's a tendency on all of our parts, to go, wait a second, that doesn't sound like it's right. That doesn't sound like it could be true. And it's important that when we talk about these things that we say, wait a second, let's see what the Word says. Is it true first? Then let's talk about how it can be true. Let's let the Word govern what we think about these things. In our natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God. It's not just that some parts are sinful and others are pure." But every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, the center of our desires and decision-making process, our goals and motives, even our physical bodies. Listen to this, Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Titus 1, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 4, 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So our natures, in our natures, we're totally we're, we we totally lack spiritual good before God. But in our actions, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. In our actions, we're totally unable to do spiritual good before God. It seems incompatible with the neighbor who packs up his stuff and gives to Goodwill or gives to people that you that that. Are in need. Look at Romans eight eight. Let's see if it is true in the Word. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, you can't get much more definitive than that. John fifteen five. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Ephesians two one to two. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Look at Hebrews eleven six, all the way down here at the bottom. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, that is God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Who are the ones that are in the flesh that Paul mentions in Romans 8, 8, where he says they they cannot please God? Who are those? Those are the ones without faith. It's impossible to please God in and of ourselves. So here's the state of humanity as I think Scripture bears it out. However, there is a minority report From time to time, has risen up uh, in churches and in Christian culture. Two of them that I want to draw your attention to, and we'll we'll spend some time talking about these and the way that they understood the nature of humanity. Because I think it's really important to see not only uh, what I think Scripture is bearing out about us, but also what it is that we're prone to believe about ourselves. Um. So in contrast to this doctrine, this doctrine of inherited guilt, original sin, uh, some might call it, um, Augustine was really the f- one of the first ones to put a f- really fine point on it. And Augustine is somewhere in the 300s. So Augustine kind of puts this forth, and there's, there's others too that reiterated it. But about that time there was a man called Pelagius who rose up in about 350 A.D., and he objected to this and said it, was, it would be blasphemous to think God would impute, that is, take the sin of Adam, the guilt and sin of Adam, and the corruption of Adam, and impute that to us, just give it to us, transfer that over to us. The will, he said, is free and unhindered, free and unhindered by a depraved nature. Because, see, Pelagius' is understanding, wait a second, if you're saying that we are corrupted from the womb, just wicked from the womb, then that means that all of Adam's sin was put on me and that my will then is not free and unhindered. My will is bound to sin. So he, he gets what's being said there in the Scriptures. If the heart is desperately wicked, who can conceive if it's impossible to please God in our nature, if you're telling me that, my, that I'm, I'm born wicked from the womb, then that means that my will, contrary to being free and unhindered, is, is bound into sin. I have really no choice. And Pelagius is saying, no, I am, I am uh, free and unhindered from a depra- depraved nature. And therefore, my will retains its ability to choose good or evil equally. And assistance isn't necessary since the will is not free and is in need of God's help. So basically, what he's saying is that there's no assistance needed from God because my my born I'm born, I'm not born to the corruption of Adam. I'm not held responsible for Adam's sin. Yet what's difficult about the position that he's laying out is that well, Scripture kind of steps in the way of that and says Yes, you are, from the womb. In sin did my mother conceive me, David says. From the womb I was wicked. He's not talking about his mom's sin. He's talking about his, his own. I'm, I'm, I was born in it. And that's in the midst of him confessing his sin. And that's what he's saying. I, I, this has been me from the beginning. You've had me dead to rights from the beginning. Pelagius is saying, no, that, that can't be true. So Pelagius is condemned as a heretic in the 300s by... Several councils: Council of Carthage, Council of Ephesus, another council. And so, what was sought as kind of a middle ground was semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagian was sought as a middle ground between uh, Augustine over here, who's saying you're born corrupt, you, you're wicked from the womb. There's there's nothing you can do. You're born into Adam's guilt. And Pelagius saying, no, you're quite the opposite. You're born at a zero. You're born neutral. Semi-Pelagian is somewhere in the middle. Semi-Pelagianism said that while man does need God's universal grace due to the crippling effect of sin, so he's pushing back against Pelagius, man is not corrupted by the fall so that he can't initiate salvation in the first place. So in other words, Semi-Pelagianism is saying, look, we needed some help to get back to zero. God had to get us back to zero and we needed that kind of help because of what Adam did to us. But once he got us back to zero, now the choice is ours, right? Now we're born and, and now it's a zero. So really, between Pelagius and semi-Pelagianism, both of them are saying effectively the same thing by the time someone is born, right? Before someone is born, Pelagius is saying, no way, we're not inheriting Adam's guilt. Semi-Pelagianism is saying, no, we, we are, But God got us back to zero. We needed that help. God got us back to zero. Now the will is free and unendered, and we can choose one way or the other. So when you're born, you're not really born into sin by the time the kid makes it out of the womb. So it also argues that man is able, then, to make the first move toward God, cooperating with or resisting His grace, depending on which way they want to go can cooperate with His grace, or they can resist His grace. But man is going to make that first move towards God because his will remains in this free state. He's a free agent. He can choose whatever team he wants to be on, right? Once he gets outside the womb, he can choose which way he wants to go. So this is sort of the minority report that's rising. And so as we talk about salvation, it's not just going to be what does the Bible say? But it's also going to be, how have, these, how have we understood salvation throughout history and how have these movements changed a little bit? And it, and I think as we kind of go through, you'll start to see maybe some of your own, the things that you've thought about how you were saved and how you came to Christ and, and, and how your eyes were opened and, and what your state was before you heard the gospel and all of those kinds of things. I think some of those things will start to t- take shape and make sense and you'll go, oh wait, I'm actually really influenced by that guy. That, his influence throughout history has, has actually landed on me, and that's what I thought, right? And so you'll start to see some of those things taking shape. But the point is that that original sin of Adam is a corrupting, has such a corrupting influence that it condemns us in the womb before we're ever born, before we ever choose right or wrong. So it's not a matter of saying, my kid was born and, 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 and he's well now he's guilty and he, he, he deserves the wrath of God because he stole from his sister the other day or he hit her. You can tell what's common in our house by the examples that I use. But he was born that way. He, in other words, you sin because you're a sinner. And you being a sinner goes much further back than the first time you decided to take the candy bar from the store. Questions? James. <laughs> yeah Yeah. From the, fa- from the factory, the sliding door on the minivan never worked, right? And so the van's recalled before it ever yeah, it's very good, very good analogy.. Yeah. Other questions? It'll get more controversial as we go, so just. Go. Um, so they're they're going to be really important for the discussion. So how we understand the freedom of the will, she asked about the freedom of the will. When people say free will, it's, it's sometimes difficult to pin them down as to what they mean when they say free will. Sometimes people say free will in just meaning I can choose a blue sock or a gray sock this morning, right? Like that kind of, I have a choice to make. Um, And sometimes people say free will, meaning I am completely and totally unhindered by anything ever and completely free to make any decision that I want to. That's false and no Christian has ever believed that. right? But some Christians today mean that or they think they mean that. And it it takes just a little bit of pushing to realize, I can't mean that. Think of it this way. If you have that kind of freedom, you're the only one in the universe that has that freedom. Right? Because the minute you come in contact with somebody else and determine what they're going to do, they no longer have free will and you do. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Okay you if you if you think the kind of freedom that you have the, the freedom of your will is such that you are completely unhindered by anything and you can choose anything you want then you're the only one in the universe that can have that power because the minute you interfere with somebody and your will is opposite theirs whoever wins has the freedom of the will right so the only one that can have that kind of freedom in this universe is god period Because the minute his will is contrary to ours, we want to live, and he says you die, who's going to win? He's going to win, right? You die, okay? So you you can't have that kind of freedom. Nobody's ever believed that, right? But not giving much thought, you kind of think that. That's That's to some extent what they're saying, is that from the beginning I was born, I have no corrupting influence on my life. So I have the ability to choose salvation or to not choose salvation, and God completely just steps back and has no interfering governance at all. At all in my life, right? And so they're, kind of, they're, they're essentially pushing in that direction. Like, that's not exactly the same thing that like an Arminian would be saying about how they choose salvation, right? That's not exactly the same thing. We're going to get to Arminius at, at least in a couple of weeks. Maybe not. Maybe not next week, but at least in a couple of weeks. And we're going to see some of that. Tommy. Um, you, you say is, is some right. There. Right. Right, right. They're, 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 they're great. They're innocent. I mean, you'll hear the innocence of a child, the age of accountability, right? You'll hear a lot of those kinds of things. Uh, yeah, the problem with those views is they don't have any grounds in Scripture. I, I, I mean, when somebody says, you know, the kid is innocent until a certain age, I, I, I think they mean well, right? And, and I, think, I think we all kind of realize A kid that steals a candy bar from a store, a five-year-old kid that steals a candy bar from a store, and a 30-year-old man that does it, those are different, right? I think we all kind of, by nature, in our own justicism, we recognize that, that they're different. The, The problem is, that's not how the Bible depicts humanity. David doesn't even depict it that way. He's committed a sin by having an affair with this woman and sending her husband off to die, And as he's confessing this sin, he goes, in sin did my mother conceive me. I I was wicked from the womb. Jeremiah, uh, uh, Isaiah, they all speak to man's heart being twisted from the get-go. It's never right. I think what we want to do, our hope is, is to say, well, there's an age of accountability, and the reason we do that is so that we can come beside the grieving mother who's lost her child in infancy, put our arm around her, and say, your kid is in heaven right? Because they're innocent, right? Until a certain age. And I, and I think we want to do that. And so I think there's a, there's a, a part of our desire for that that is, is good. The problem is, and I, and I want to put this out there, if God forbid this ever happen, right, in our congregation, please, please don't ask me where your child is for eternity. I don't have that ability, right? That is not given to me, nor any pastor, don't ever put them in the situation where they're trying to tell you where your kid is for eternity. That is not our decision. The buck stops well before it ever gets to us on that, on that decision, okay? And and, and so I, I want, as we go through this, to first understand what the Bible has to say about these things. We're twisted from the womb, right? When we get to questions about what happens to our kids when they die or other, there's other complicated questions all in that same, same sphere. I think what we can rest on is the goodness of God, and we can trust in His grace, and we can trust in His mercy, and know at the same time, I don't have the answers to those questions, because they're not given to me. That's way above my pay grade, and I don't know all the answers to those situations. I think we want to step into that ground, and we want to step in the middle of it, and we want to go, let's resolve this problem here. And let's just say, there's an age of accountability, and before then, we know that they're in heaven. But the reality is, the Bible's just silent on all that, and I think that means that God wants us to be silent on it. And He wants us to say, look, just trust my word. Trust my goodness, trust my mercy, and trust the fact that I've got it figured out. And all of the ways in which I judge the world are all just and good ways. And so you can answer what I've given you, and what I've revealed about myself, you can say, And where I haven't said what happens, you need to just be quiet, right? And I think that's where we kind of need to be instead. You know, we we don't want to be there, I I don't think. I think sometimes we want those kinds of assurances and we want those kinds of things, but we don't have them. It makes us feel better, yeah, but we don't have them. We we just trust the goodness of God. Right, right. And And yet His ways are higher than our ways. And, and we don't, we don't, that's above our pay grade. And I think we just need to say, let's instead just say we trust the goodness of God. We trust His mercy. We trust His grace. We trust His justice. We trust His holiness. We trust all the things we do know about Him. And so we're going to say whatever decision He makes on anybody, about anything, in any course of time in history, it's right. And we're just going to say we're going to trust it. That what he has for us is good. And I think too, this is true of judgment day. That we'll all stand and give an account. And I think at the end of it all, I think we'll say, yeah, that was the right thing to do. I don't think there's any judgment God's ever going to make. That we're going to say, I wouldn't have done it that way. If we knew what he knew. So that's a long answer to a short question. It's Hard. It's very hard. James. Yeah. Yeah. all to so Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you th- you think uh, it's sort of evidence of the fact that we have a sin- we're born in sin and we have a sinful nature from the get-go. Cuz you'd think that if Pelagius was right, we'd have got one of them right, right? There would have been a kid somewhere along the way that were like, "Man, he just threaded the needle, baby. <laughs> he he's the good one." Yeah, you know, we we don't have that outside of Christ and we will we'll get to him later on. Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. David Um, is there any difference in those two um yeah I guess both and say maybe a a finite amount of difference between those two pursuing sin, not pursuing sin, salvation, not pursuing salvation yeah yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so th- this is where we get to, you know, we'll, we'll talk about uh, Luther is one, he's coming back to Augustine, but they're, they're kind of talking about the bondage of man's will is such that talking about free will in regards to man who is born sinful is like a prisoner saying that he's free because he can roam the prison yard, right? He gets out and he's able to play basketball with the other inmates, but in what sense is he really free? Right? He's not. He's still behind the wire. So when we talk about free will, that's where some of the reformers are going to come in and go, but if your bondage is to sin, and the Bible tells you you're bound to sin, how free can you really be? And what do you mean by freedom? Because I don't think it means what you think it means. You know, as the princess bride like, Inconceivable. I don't think it means what you think it means. Okay, well, we'll get to some of these things later on, and you can tell already there's going to be some questions yeah. brought up. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that as we talk about salvation and what we've come to find in Christ, um, that we will be astounded at your grace and mercy above all else that when we hear, for by grace you have been saved, and not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, that that would cause us to drop our jaw in amazement the fact that you were that gracious and that merciful. So I pray that beyond creating controversy or any kind of animosity or anything like that, more than anything, we would just be astounded by Your grace. Astounded by Your mercy. So, turn our attention to You. We pray that instead of navel-gazing, we might understand what it is You've done for us. And we might live to Your glory because of it. In Jesus' name, Amen.